the month of January, we've been working very hard to, to really unpack why we exist as a church, right? And, um, and so this is the last sermon in that series. And if you're like, well, man, I wish I could have heard that, you can go back and listen to it, or I'll hopefully catch you up at least on some of these pieces this morning. But just to recap, here's why we exist as a church. We exist to magnify Jesus, to make him great in the city of Greensburg. Now, we don't actually make God great. He is great, right? When we see magnify, it's kind of like a telescope that magnifies galaxies. When you look in a telescope, you see things you had not seen prior to putting your eyeball up to that, right? So not like a microscope where we make, you know, teeny God make him look big. No, 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 no. God's infinitely great, And our desire is to live our lives in a particular way that when people come in contact with us, they will say, what, why? And we'll be able to say because we have a great God, right? And and so we want to do that primarily by making disciples who, who, who are distinct, right? Because all churches make disciples. Not all of them are healthy. Not all of them are good. We would measure health primarily by love, but by disciples who, who speak the Word of God and show its transforming power in the way that we live. So life and lips, okay? And, and then if we do that long enough, we actually believe that God will bring together a people And there's going to come a moment where we have critical mass and we have to all make a decision as as a leadership team and we want the church's input. Do we go now and do the big building thing, right? We go get a bunch of money. And I'm not against big church. I came from a church that was big. But we have decided to not do that. We have decided strategically that really the way forward is not have a come and see moment, but have a go and tell people. And so we want to keep on gathering, growing. What's that critical mass? I don't know, because there's a lot of measurements to get to the point where we can say, now's the time. You definitely got to have a preacher. You got to have someone who's called the church plant, and you got to have people who want to follow that man. But we want to hive off 10, 20 people and say, now go lay trobe. And I don't really mean lay trobe, but we want to be a church plant that plants churches that do the same thing, but are not the same for the city church. We want them to be autonomous churches, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, loving the people in the place where they're at to continue to see this thing go and to see this thing grow. Until when? Until the Lord returns. That's what we want to do, right? So the nine of us moved here last January. That's why we did. And then we, we, we had a handful of people who were crazy enough to say, yeah, let's do this thing. Join us, right? And, and that, so we started meeting in our home right? And that's what it looked like just this past September is when we launched our, what we would call our public service, okay? So if you're new, that's, that's not going to catch you up. That's a 30,000 foot view of where we've been and, and really even where we're going. And today is our last sermon in that series. And, and what is today's sermon about? To say it plainly, it's, it's love, right? Normally I'd point to the sign. It's right here, but it's not here this morning. But it says, we, our values, our values are to love Jesus, to love the church, the people of God, and to love this world that he's placed us in, okay? So we're going to tackle all three of those in really one sermon, but if you keep coming, you'll hear it in every sermon. And if you don't, that's a problem, It's seriously a problem. This is why we exist as a people, to magnify Christ by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply. And the health of that measurement is love. 
And we didn't just make that up. That's, it, it's like prego. It's in there. It's in the Bible, right? So I want you to see that. I want you to see that, right? Why? Because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. We were meeting as a, as a small group this week, and I had said something, and, and it really caught the attention of some people. And I said, you know, if a church is not preaching and teaching the gospel, and they're not doing what the Bible commands, and they're not seeking to love the Lord and love one another, I hope they die. And everybody's like, whoa. And I didn't mean them individually and physically. <laughs> I should have been more clear. Someone then tried to clean up my message. And I said, don't, because I meant what I said. A church is a, a living organism. It's a people. And if they're not doing what God has called them to do, they ought to close their doors and be done. And if you think that's harsh, well, then you're going to have a problem with Jesus, which is what I want you to see. But before I do that, let me, let me tell you a story. And I'm going to read it because it's not my story, okay? You're going to pay attention? Ready? I knew the patient before she died. It was 10 years ago. She was very sick at the time, but she did not want to admit it. There was only a glimmer of hope at best, but that hope could become a reality only with radical change. She wasn't nearly ready for that change. Indeed, she was highly resistant to any change, even though she was very sick, even though she was dying. I told her the bad news bluntly, you are dying. I hope I said those words with some compassion. I did feel badly sharing the news, but it was the only way that I could get her attention. I even told her that at best she had five years to live. At the time I said those words, I, I got to admit, I don't really think I was that optimistic. I would not have been surprised if she would have died within the year. But she was not only in denial, she was in angry denial. I'll show you, she said. I'll prove you're wrong. I'm not dying. Her words were fierce, defiant, angry. It was time for me to leave. I had done all that I could, so I left. I was not angry. I was sad, very sad. Now, to her credit, she was right up to a point. She did not die in five years. She proved resilient and survived another ten. But her last decade though she was technically alive, was filled with pain, sickness, and despair. I'm not so sure her long-term survival was even a good thing. She never got better. She slowly and painfully deteriorated. And then she died. She, of course, is a church. A real church. That is written by a man who goes to sick and dying churches and tries to help them. And uh, it's, it's far too often. Jake, can I get a timer? I know some people will want to leave eventually. <laughs> it, it is sad. It's sad. All churches are birthed with a desire to do everything we're seeking to do. Every one of them. They are. That's what they aim to do. That's why they get out of bed. That's why they work. But you're generally only one or two generations removed before the thing gets, gets off course. And when that happens, it dies because someone took their eye off the North Star. By the way, that primarily happens at its peak, believe it or not. 
And you think, no way. Yeah, it does. Because what happens is you've reached this point where you got enough people. You don't need anyone else. you got enough cash coming in. Like the ABCs of church, right? Attendance, buildings, cash. We got it. We don't need to go and actually do the thing Jesus commanded us to do because we have a social club called church. So now you have these beautiful buildings. I wish someone would give us one. I'd pray for that. I do. You should pray too because many of them are actually utilized for King Jesus. They're just not. And they're not, it's, it's not their building. Jesus owns everything. So, would you join me? I'm serious, like not right this second, but join me in praying that the Lord would lay it on the heart of a, just a dead church. They're, they're dead already, but they still have a cash flow because Aunt Ethel died 30 years ago and left them a bunch of money to maintain a building. And it's just sitting there wasting when it could be utilized for King Jesus' sake, okay? So join me in that prayer. Maybe he'll answer that. Maybe he won't. Some of you gave me big eyes, so I got your attention. Good. Let me ask the question, why do churches die? I kind of tipped my hat a little bit at the answer to that question. There, there are a lot of answers you could actually give. There really are. Um, lack of vision from leadership. Bad leadership, right? Like anytime an organization just fails, it's always leadership's problem. It's always their fault. Fish rot from the head down, right? And that's a fact. And money issues, moral failures, um, disunity, to name a few. But you could boil all of those down to one single answer, and it's a lack of love. That's the answer. Because all of those other things, they, they probably have sin wrapped in them and all of that. And sin is a lack of love. All sin, by the way, is a lack of love. Sin is preferring anything more than you prefer Jesus. You could, you could boil all sin down to that. I don't care what you say. I don't care what your word says. I want what I want. I don't love you. Okay? So simply put, listen, they let their love grow cold. That's why churches die. It really is. So if we don't love, we won't last. And I'm saying that's a good thing. There's more churches that need to just close their doors because they're not loving. They're actually doing harm to the witness of Christ because they're angry and they're bitter. And you know it if you get near them. This happens all too often to churches. So I say to For the City Church as a baby, a baby plant, and if you do anything with plants, all I do is kill them. Pray that that's not true of a church plant. Um, and it's not because it's not up to me. It's up to Jesus, and I'm thankful for that. But they need attention. They need water. They need the right amount of sunlight, not too much. They're fragile. But I want you to know right now, love or die. Just love or die. That, that's the title of the sermon. Where, where do you get that? This is not going to be our main text, but I want you to see it. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. Um, listen, this is about the church in Ephesus. The, the, I may preach in the book of Ephesians coming up this fall. Not sure. It's between that and one other. But I want you to know this about the church in Ephesians, right? Or in Ephesus. Um, here's the beauty of this church. You can see it be born. It's born in Acts 19. And you can actually follow the life of this church more than any church in the Bible. Because Paul wrote a, a letter to them named the book of Ephesians. But then also, First and Second Timothy, Timothy was the pastor of that church. And Paul's exhorting him as to what to do with that church. And then what we see is John, the, the one that Jesus loved, 
He, he actually, he's you know, the, the, the apostle. He's an elder at the church. So he's like an executive pastor, right? He's making sure Timothy's doing his work. And guess what? First, second, and third John are all really rebukes to the church in Ephesus. And if you're like, wow, that's pretty rough stuff, then Jesus has some words for them. And listen to the words that Jesus has for this church. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pause. Man, I want my daughter to go to that church when she goes off to college. That sounds really good. I would want that report for us, right? You're, you're, You're seeking to be a holy people. You know false teaching because you obviously know good teaching. You're serious about that. You don't want to endure evil. You patiently endure the situation that's going on. But then, well, if we stop reading there, it'd been really good, but he continues. But I have this against you. Uh oh, what do you have against us, Jesus? That you have abandoned the love you've had at first. This is to a church body. You're doctrinally pure, your teachings right. You don't tolerate these things, you are patient with it all. He, he's saying you could have right teaching and no spirit filled love. He goes, therefore, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember where you were. Remember where you have fallen. Repent. Literally, change. Time to change, church. And do the works you first did. Listen, listen. It's it's a threat. It's probably too hard. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Lampstand. It's like, Jesus is going to take the light? Yeah, not like that lamp or that lamp, but like your witness. You're to be a city on the hill, shining bright for Jesus. I will remove my presence and my power from you if you do not get back to doing what you once said you did. Whew. So, I stick with love or die. The risen Christ is correcting the church in Ephesus because the, the church is on the brink of disaster. And you see it, it's not for giving up truth. I hear so many churches laboring to to don't bend on truth. And you ought to not bend on truth. But truth without love, it's like taking steel and smashing it against a tin can. It just damages, right? It just damages. No, we need truth and grace. Jesus is full of truth and grace. We need a body of people who are full of the Spirit. We need a people who are full of love and grace and mercy and truth, especially in the culture we live right now, which doesn't like truth. But no culture ever did. It just looks different. Churches die because like the church in Ephesus, they lost their first love. What was their first love? Christ. Christ. Which means you can be doctrinally pure and not love Jesus. You can be chosen and frozen. And there's something wrong with that. Let that never happen to us. Apart from receiving, enjoying, and loving Jesus in the gospel, it will be impossible to love others in this church and in this city. So we need to be a people full of love. For that to happen, we must be a people who receives the love of Christ over and over every day, nonstop. 
Because, you know, I know many of you, you're very kind, you're very loving. But any love that's born from us, that's the love that we're talking about, is born from the Spirit, right? Love is, is a serious topic within all of the Bible, right? The Pharisees put Jesus to the test. Um, they, they, they ask him this question in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're, they're really, they're trying to trick him, right? And he said to them, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And at, if he would have stopped right there, they would have been like, man, he's good. That is right. That's exactly right, Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. And seconds like this, he said, oh, Pharisees, you can almost just imagine. They just do the dog thing. Hmm? They just turn their head. Second, seconds like this, like this. What's that mean? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and prophets. By the way, he means their Bible. So he, he could just hold up the scroll, the Old Testament, and he could just say, all of these scrolls boil down to this. Love God, love others. And they would have had no problem with you saying love God, but that love others, that's a real problem for them. See, the, the Pharisees had to be wondering, like, well, what about the rules? What about all the commands? What about all the other things? What about sin, Jesus? But here's the thing. Jesus knows you cannot, you cannot sin if you love God and others. Because the sin is to hate one or both every time. This is why he boils them down. So love for God and love for others grows together, by the way. And, and I'm going to put you to the test. You could disagree with me. Come over to lunch. I love lively debates. The, you could say, I love God, I just don't love them. That's a problem. Right? Who's them? You fill in the blank. Because your love for God and your love for others, they grow together. If you lack love for people, you really lack understanding of the love that God has for you as a sinner who he saved. The more you understand that and have the power of the Spirit to understand, have the eyes of your heart open up, you will love God and it will grow together and you will love the worst of these because you understand, but that's me. That's me. That's the power of the gospel to do that. But, but also it's the power of the Spirit at work in all who believe. He's creating a people who love, who love God and who love other people. By the way, love is not tolerance. There's times where tolerance can be a good thing. Like if you have someone who's just acting up in your home, you, you want to be gracious towards them, right? You want to be patient towards them. But God does not mean people ought to be tolerant with sin. But we are a people who continue to love that person made in the image of God and directing them and pointing them to the one who took upon their sin and to put their trust in him. Right? We don't close them off. We actually invite them closer. We invite them into our home. We feed them. And we keep praying that the Lord would open their eyes to see, to believe, because that's the power to change. Right? The world has it so jacked up. I mean, God clearly cares about love. Would we agree with that? Yeah. But so does the world. Right? I mean, in a sense, right? In a sense. Like, who will deny that the dominant theme within our culture is that we live in an age of love? Now, how is love defined is a really good question. We're not going there yet, right? But like, if, if, listen, watch movies. 
love, right? It's everywhere, especially Hallmark, around Christmas, right? Songs, everybody sings songs about love, stories about love, 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 love. Millions seek after it, right? Little girls definitely dream of it. Artists paint it. There's an artist in West Virginia. I love this dude's work. He does not love Jesus. And every Every painting, every piece of art, he has some kind of heart in it, and he's conveying a message. He desperately wants to be loved. And we actually had a great conversation, don't have time to talk about that. Singers sing it. Many crave it. Everyone talks about love, though not everyone knows what it is, and very few actually attempt it. Attempt it. Because love is so much more than a feeling. It involves feelings, but it's action. It's action. See, our, our post-truth culture often thinks of love and emotion. Responses primarily. Physical attraction, yeah, that's there. Or some kind of sappy feeling. And, and I can tell you right now, that's why people say, I fell out of love. What does that even mean? Oh, that's so, yeah, right? It, it it's, it's involves feelings, but it's so much more than that. So what is it? Seriously, like, what is love? It's, it's actually harder to define than we probably think at times. And everyone wants to know what it is. You're all very young, but there was this band called Foreigner. Who's heard of them? A couple, right? And in 1984, they sung a song, and it's, I want to know what love is. Now, it was very hard for me to actually say the title without singing it. <laughs> You ever have that? Like, it's like, I just want, but then I was confusing it like white snake. What is love? Right? Like, right. so I was like, eh, no one wants to hear me sing. And, and there's reasons for that. And they're all good. So what I want to do is attempt to answer foreigners question. What is love? What is it? Because we all want it. We are wired, hardwired for it. We really are. And um, so now, this is the text we're going to work from. 1 John, so 1 John 4, 7 through 12. I'll give you a moment. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you have technology, download it on there. But if you're like, well, I'd rather have a paper book, you know, they still make those. We have them. We give you one, right? So if you want a Bible, we'd be glad to give you a Bible. But I, I, I keep saying this, but I'm going to say it often because we have new people come in and out. I want you to see it in the Word. I want you to be a people of the word. I want us to be a very biblically serious people. I really do. I, that's why I, I pray for that often. That's why we preach it. That's why we teach it. That's why even if you come around our small groups, we're going to talk about it. We're reading through the Bible together this year as a group, as a church family. We talk about it one-on-one. -on -one. The reason is, is because it's the book where we see the love of God most clearly. It's how we know of God's love. So we want to be a biblically serious people. So to do that is to teach you how to read. And that can happen through preaching and teaching because I want you to see it come from the word, not just from me. Okay, so 1 John 4, 7 through 12. I'm going to read the whole thing. We're going to just work our way through it. Beloved, let us love one another. By the way, that's the command. I'm not going to talk much about it. I'm not going to, it's the command. I knew a preacher one time, by the way, really good friend of mine named Fred, who planted a church in Lower Borough, great church. He got up as a very young man. He read that command. He said, now go do that. Stepped off stage, went home. But he didn't tell anyone. So the worship team didn't know. Like, is this a joke? 
Is, is he serious? Like, is he going to come back up? Is this just an introduction? He literally just stood up. He said, beloved, let us love one another. He looked up. He said, now church, go do that. And he, he just, he went home. That was the sermon. And he didn't tell anyone. He got in trouble. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, that's some lazy preparation. But I'll tell you what, if you talk to anybody who is still at that church, they will talk about that sermon. And it was profound. It was profound. Because what more do you need? Just go do the thing. But you need a lot. Um, so let's continue. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or obvious or clear among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My guess is none of you used that word this week. So um, wrath absorber, wrath remover. Jesus stood in the gap and received the punishment we deserve. Okay, that's, that's simply put. Beloved, if God so loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. And he primarily means here the church, the body of believers. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. A couple of things to notice from the whole passage. Three times in this passage, we are exhorted to love one another. You can see it in verse 7, verse 11, verse 12. Understand this. Love is not an option for the believer. It's just not. It's to be a distinguishing mark of Jesus' disciples within the church and, and, man, so full of it that it spills out into the city and the people we come in contact with. It's just not optional. The stakes are very, very high. John literally says, if you do not love others, you do not know God. That's pretty heavy. So let's unpack the text. First point, ready? It's, it's super profound. God is love. God is love. Okay, you see it? God is the source of all genuine love. Someone's just needing some care and she's going to be okay. God is the source of all genuine love because it comes from his very nature. Notice in verse 7, love is from God, right? So, so listen, it, that does not mean that unbelieving people who don't love Jesus can't love. They can because they're made in his image and because of general grace, it can happen. But it's not their nature. It's not, it doesn't just exude from them in that moment. But then the text goes on further, verse 8, to say that God is love. God is love. You see that? So God's love is perfect. It's perfect. It's unlike our love. Our love is very imperfect. No matter how hard we try, you and I never love perfectly, right? Can, can I at least get an amen on that? Okay, a lot of head nods. You guys don't like your voice. His love never changes. It's steadfast. His love never comes to an end. He just never gets to a point where he says, I'm done loving you. It's never. He's, he's not like that. Everything God does is loving because it is who he is. It's, it's his very nature to love. 
It's wildly different than us. By the way, this, just a side note, this doesn't mean that God has no other attributes. When we say God is love, what, what we must never mean in that moment is that love is more important than all his other attributes. We, we, I see so many people do this. They, they say that God is love, therefore he cannot. And then you just fill in the blank. He cannot be wrathful. He cannot be hatred towards sin and all these. But you cannot remove judgment and love. As a matter of fact, the cross is where they come together. That's why we need a, a deep, profound understanding of what happened at the cross. But you cannot ever separate them from his attributes. Like he's love, therefore he's not these things. God's love never operates apart from his holiness. Never. It never operates apart from his mercy. It never operates apart from his justice or any other attributes. All of God's attributes are at perfect harmony with one another, and everything he does is loving. And that might be very hard for you to wrap your brain around. It is. It is. It's very hard, but you should work hard to try to figure that out and ask God to help you. What it does indicate, though, is that love is fundamental to who God is and what he does, just as everything he does is just and right. God is one of a kind. There's no one like him. He is in a class all by himself. Still doesn't answer foreigner's question, though. What's well, love? Well, you could say God is love. What's that mean, though? What's that mean? How do we see it? What do we know what that is, which is point two? And you see it in verses 9 through 10. So I'm going to read those again. God loves us. God loves us. That's point two. In this is the love of God was made manifest, clear among us that what? God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. Because of our sin, we were separated from him. He made a way for us to come and to live with him. But he could not have us come as sinners. It'd be like us trying to hug the sun. You'd be evaporated right? It'd be worse than that though, right? So you can't draw near to a holy God unless you yourselves are perfect. Jesus made a way for us to live with him, live through him. In this is love, he says. Listen, not that we have loved God. So many people get, get that backwards. They think that God loved us because we finally got to a point where we loved him right. It's not the gospel. It's not true might be religion, but it's not good news because you and I could never get to a point where we're lovable enough for God to love us. He loves us in spite of our sin, but not really because he sends his son to care for the problem. And the problem is our rebellion, right? But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So for so many reasons, this is a real problem for many people. This, the cross, by the way. What do I mean when it's a real problem? Well, some will say that a loving God would never pour out his wrath upon Jesus. And yet, it's at the cross. The cross does not reject the love of God, but rather it reveals it unlike anything else, if you see it. By the way, if you see that and if you know that and if you're thankful for the cross of Christ, then a miracle has happened in your heart and in your mind. Because you can't naturally believe that or see that. I know for a year I sat within a church and heard the gospel taught and preached and I was spiritually dead. I couldn't see it. Uh, and one day, and I wasn't looking for Jesus that day, he opened my eyes. He gave me the faith to see and to believe. It's a miracle. 
that happens in the heart. It's at the cross of Christ that the love of God for us is most clearly seen. It's the apex. It's, It's everything. The greatest demonstration of love is stunningly revealed at the cross of Christ. The depth of our sin and the depth of God's love actually can't be understood apart from the cross. See, we always start with this natural bent that we think that that God owes us something. And he does, but it's never what we think he owes us, right? Listen, for 23 years, I would say God's not fair as an unbelieving man. Can't believe my sister died at such a young age of cancer. Can't believe I'm struggling here. God, you're not fair. So what am I saying when I say that? You're doing something not right. You owe me something different than this moment. As I understood the gospel, I did understand that he did owe me something. Guess what he owed me? It was not what I thought. It was not like ponies and ice cream and sprinkles on top. He owed me his wrath because I had sinned against a holy and perfect God. That's all he owed me. And anything above that is mercy and grace from a loving God. From a loving God. See, Jesus willingly laid down his life for us upon a cross. Jesus allowed himself to be tortured and crushed and ultimately killed for sinners. Willingly. For the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 would say. Jesus held nothing back. It was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' love was an active love. He didn't just look down upon our state and say, oh, I love them. No, God put on flesh, lived among us, lived the perfect life you and I could never live, died the death we deserve to die. He did not deserve to die because he was perfect, but he took our sin upon him for the sake of love. 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 It's a bloody, gross love, but it's the most beautiful thing if you're in Christ because apart from it, you and I could never have relationship with God God did not love us because we were lovable. Or to say it another way, God's love was not in a response to our loveliness. you got to get this. Because so many people are trying to earn the love of God by behaving and doing these things as though God's like impressed. Like, way to go, you are nice. He's not impressed with that. No, he requires perfection. And you and I right out of the gate are guilty. We're born sinners. So, so what has to happen? A payment has to happen. And Jesus was that payment on our behalf and in our place. So then he gives you his perfection. Oh, oh you're right. I'm guilty. I deserve to be crushed. But Jesus was crushed in my place. I, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need grace. Jesus said, that's why I came. I came to seek and to save sinners. I came to save rotten people because that's all there is. Religion's so much different than that. We think of the word uh, religion. I'm using that in a negative context here. Almost in the sense of like a Western. Uh, I'm forever going to be a a guy. I can't help it, right? I wish I had flowery pictures. But a Western, right? You got good guys, you got bad guys. Bad guys, what color horses are they on? Black, good job. All right, good guys. What color are they on? White, that's exactly right. And we think like that. We think that, you know, 
hey, the good guys, the ones Jesus loves, they're on white horses and they're doing good deeds. And of course he loves them because now he owes it to them. Black horse guys, well, no, not so much. That's not at all the gospel. The gospel is everyone's on a black horse working for evil. And Jesus is the only man who's on a white horse. And he's coming to rescue people on the black horse team and bring them into his family, wash them clean through his blood and repentance and faith and say, now you're mine. That's the gospel. You and I can't earn grace. That's the whole point. It's freely given to people who don't deserve it. So this, this is so close to the heart of love. This is love. Why does he do this? So that we might live through him. Do you see it? The love of God is not merely sentimental, but it's active. It's, it's effectual. Oh, get that, man. If we can get this, we will be a different people in this city. Normally when people speak of love, they usually mean nothing more than emotions, right? Like we talked about earlier. But, but that's not. Well, like, like social media, that's where you see it most primarily, right? Save a whale. How do you do that? Change your background. I love whales. Do it for 48 hours. Everybody's like, wow, you're so caring. Who cares? I mean, if you want to change your background to love whales, do it. But if you think that's love, it's not that impressive. What does it cost you? To change your background. What's it cost you? A little bit of inconvenience, I guess. But they make it pretty easy. Change your background. Touch here. Boom. Done. We think that's love. It's, it's not. It might be born from it. Thankfully, God doesn't just feel love towards us. That's so good. See, love actually compels him to act. To respond on our behalf. So listen, if you're in Christ... You are saved from God. Well, you need to get this. You're saved from His just and perfect wrath. You are saved by God through Jesus' sacrifice. Now, this is the piece where most people miss it. You are saved for God, to His delight, to His praise. You're His, and He loves you. How much does He love you? So much He sent His Son to die in your place. That's mega love. See, you and I will love people who are kind to us. But we, we, apart from the Spirit, won't love those who spit in our face and hate us. That's Jesus' kind of love. That's Jesus' kind of love. And that's the kind of love he has for you. How do you know? Look to the cross. That's how you see. That's how you know. That's why we sing of it. That's why we preach it. That's why we teach it. We thank God for it because apart from that moment in that time, you and I could never draw near to this God who is love. And so we thank God for him and for that moment and for what he has done. So what is love? Foreigner, I would say it like this. Ready? Love is compassion that leads to action. Okay, I'm going to add a little bit more. And it shows itself in self-sacrificing, caring commitment. I just touched my screen. I shouldn't have. As it seeks the highest good of the beloved. I'm going to say it one more time. And you might be able to have a better and more concise definition. And if so, share it with me. I'll give you credit probably. I'll try. But love is compassion that leads to action. Right? You see someone who's hurting, you know, just be like, oh, I love the whale. I changed my profile. It's, it's, it leads to action. You do something. But it, it's not just something. It shows itself in self-sacrificing, caring commitment, 
as it seeks the highest good of the beloved. Seeks the highest good. So love doesn't always feel good. You can really see this in in really caring for someone who is self-destructing. Right? Someone who's maybe strung out on, on heroin. And I've had many of those friends in my life personally. And you come alongside them and you intervene in that moment. And, and what comes back at you is reviling. They hate you. I can't believe you're doing this. You're ruining my life. And, and, and they believe that, by the way. They, it's like a trapped animal and you're trying to set them free. But all they know is they're in pain, they're trapped, and you're coming and you're making it hurt worse. And so they think you're not loving them. And so many times people say, well, then I just won't do that. And they think that's loving. But love is doing the thing, even if it costs you the friendship, because it's the best for that beloved person. They may hate you forever. That's why I don't aim to please the person. I aim to please the one who made them. That's love. That's love. That's what love looks to do. It's action. It's going to cost you to love someone. It cost Jesus his life. That's love, foreigner. That's love. And that's what we need. So, last point. Since God loves, so, now listen, these words matter. Will we? So will we. Not so should we. I'm saying will we. We will. God's people will. Now, there'll be times we don't, but let's look at the text because I want you to see it. Because if you see it, I believe, I know that the majority of you, your desire is to please the Lord, right? And we please Him by faith, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith shows itself in obedience. We do not obey to get love, just to be very clear, okay? We are loved. Therefore, I would love to do this, Lord. Because what you say is best. See the difference? It's a big difference if you understand it. So let's look at 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, and I'm going to tackle that word, to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Oh, see, pastor, it says ought to. It's kind of negotiable. Wrong. Let's keep working. We need a miracle of sight to see this, because if you see this, it will change the way that you live. I believe that. I absolutely believe that truth changes the way people live if it's applied and the Holy Spirit helps you to see it. You will do it, right? Okay, so listen. Jesus loved us through the cross before we ever loved him, right? We, we hammered that home. So his love then transforms us to be a people who will love who will love. So the word ought might be very problematic if you read that. Because, so let's do a little bit of work, right? I, I just can't love that person. Oh, pastor, you don't know them. Or, or maybe it's me because I have not arrived in loving, okay? Seeking to do it, trying my hardest, need much help, much grace to do that. But you might just be like, well, you just don't know that person. You just don't know what he or she's like. They are really mean. And if you had to live with him or her, well, then you would not be able to love them either. Therefore, I know that I ought to love them, but I don't. Now, let me tackle this because I'm not saying that you should stay in a situation where someone's abusing you because that's not most loving to them. And it's not most loving to you to allow them to continue to sin against God and to sin against you. 
So I'm not saying that. So pay attention to what I am saying. But I am saying you ought not just then wash your hands of them. You ought to keep pursuing love. And love might be actually calling the cops. Actually calling the cops. But you do not quit loving the beloved if you love them. It just might look way different than what the world thinks love is. But we're tackling it from what the Bible says. So that's not how we ought to understand the word ought. Okay, the Apostle John did not forget what he just said in verses 7 and 8. Well, what did he say? Let me remind you, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, he's not detaching the two. That's why you have to read the Bible in context. That's why you have to, verse 7 and 8 better make sense when you read verse 9 and and 10 or 10 and 11, right? So he's not saying, hey, if you don't love here, that's a problem. You don't know God. But hey, if you don't love here, you ought to try harder. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. So when he says we ought to love each other, what he means when he says that is that the same way we say humans ought to eat, sleep, drink, and breathe. They ought to do that. Birds ought to fly. Lightning bugs' butts ought to light up. It's just what they do. It's their nature, right? Fish ought to swim in water, right? Bacon ought to be delicious. Strawberries ought to be sweet. Born again people ought to love. Amen. Hey, I love it when they talk back, right? Like, not in a bad way, but even if it's Siri. Why? Because it's who we are. Oh, you've been born out of love. Christ loves you. Now Christ's love is in you. And he is love. And therefore, this body ought to be love. A loving people. Right? So, so listen very carefully what's being said here. What he's saying is it's not about imitation of God. Oh, if you could get that. Right? Try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? You know, like imitation is like God loved me, so therefore I guess I have to do that now. It's my duty to love. That's not what he means. Like I owe him a solid. <laughs> Please. What's being said here is transformation. It's, tr- it's real transformation. You're a new person. That's what it means to be born again, right? This kind of love that Jesus calls us to is a love that is largely foreign to the world we live in, but it's consistent with who we are in Christ. It's very consistent. We are not being forced to do something that's unnatural to us. It's supernatural. It's for the people of God to love like this. We are simply living out the love that we've received from the Father because the Spirit lives in us. And you, there will be days you don't, like every day, which could be defeating if you didn't understand the gospel, which is why the most profound loving thing you can do is recognize when you're not loving those that are in your life and ask the Lord to forgive you, but then go one step further and go to them and say, I've been a real jerk and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you pray for me? Will you pray that the Lord would just just give me the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I so want to be like him. And I'm not right now. And I'm sorry. 
which means we got to know each other. Because I'll be honest with you, it's so easy to behave in an hour and a half service. Like, if you, no, you might be in a place where you just can't. I love people like that. I hope you grow. Because after a while, it's like, oh, like she kicked me again. That's not kind, right? But like, you ought to grow. As you grow in love with God, you grow in love with one another. This is why church has to be more than an hour and a half service. Has to be. Because you got to get to know people enough to blow it. So that you can then say, I was a jerk. Would you forgive me? But most times what we do is we don't do that. We just leave. That people is not loving. By the way, if you will leave the first time someone's not loving, you should just leave now. Because we're going to blow it with you. But if you'll stick with it, like family sticks with it, if you have a good family, and you might not, so then let the church be your family and teach you what it is to love. Boy, you will, you will love life, but it will be hard. It'd be hard. Because to love, is, it's hard. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says this, Before you can give neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the complete opposite will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. Uh, it's concise. He said in like two sentences what I've been trying to say for 40 minutes. When we do this, God will be seen in us. God will be seen in us. This is how we magnify Jesus, is by the way we love one another. Jesus says, you will know my disciples by how they memorize Scripture. <clears throat> Wrong answer. By how you love one another. They will see your love and they will know you're my people. That's how we witness to the world. It's a compelling witness. So, so question... How can we make sure that our church doesn't die? This is a simple one. Softball, hanging in the air, swing bada bada. Love. It's love. And I know you all wanted to answer that, but for whatever reason, you all will not talk to me. <laughs> Strange. We got to break that here. God help us, right? Don't miss this. So fundamental that you get this. No matter how impressive a church may appear to be on the outside, no matter how gorgeous their building is, and I've seen some gorgeous buildings, no matter how huge their congregation or even how small their congregation is, or how large and impressive their staff is, or how big their budget, no matter how dynamic their preaching and teaching is, no matter how much they give to world missions, no matter how awesome their worship team, aka music, is, it could still be dying from a lack of love. None of those things are a primary indicator in the New Testament. And I will, I will fight to prove that from the Bible. Lovingly fight. But it's love. It's always been love. We have enough theoretical Christianity, don't we? I mean, we really do. Like, what we need is God to help us to be a real people full of His grace, full of His love that makes a real difference in the world. And you can do that with a handful of people or with an army of people. But Jesus has, an, he has a family that's bigger than any army. It's like 2.8 billion people in the world claim to know Christ and love Christ. So 
He's not losing the war. He's won it. So let me ask you a question. Will you join what God is doing here at For the City? You might be like, whoa, it's my first Sunday. Not talking to you. It's my second Sunday. Still not talking to you. It's just my third Sunday. Okay, we get the point, right? Hang in there for as long as you need to until you say, this is my people. I want to run with this people. But if you're going to be here, and, and I mean, it might take you a year to figure that out. Take a year. But if you are here, will you labor towards this end? Will you give yourself to loving one another? Because that's what I'm calling you to. Because that's what the Bible's calling you to. That's why, right? Like, uh, I have an agenda. You ready? Here's what it is. I want you to love Jesus and I want you to love one another. That's my agenda. That's why I get out of bed every morning. That's why I labor, because I want you to love like that. And I want you to love like that when it's hard. I want you to love like that when, when things aren't going as smoothly as you think they ought to. I want you to love like that when it's suffering. I want you to love like that when the person you're seeking to love is mean to you. I want you to love like that because Jesus says you will do that. And when we do that, Jesus will be magnified in our life, in our lives, as a community, individually, corporately, it will happen. So let me finish with the love chapter and then a quote. And then we're done. The love chapter, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This almost always gets read at a wedding, right? Who's ever been to a wedding where they read 1 Corinthians 13? I'm not even saying that's wrong. I'm really not, because you might have been like, we read that at our wedding. It's cool. I've read it at weddings too, but I always want to make sure they understand the context. So then I give them a little Bible lesson before I say we're going to do this. But here's the deal. What is the context of 1 Corinthians 13? Good question. It's a stinging rebuke. (laughs) It is. Paul is saying to the church, this church is, by the way, the church everyone wants to go to. It's kind of like the church meets Jerry Springer, but full of amazing people because they're, they're wildly gifted, right? This, that's 1 Corinthians. That is the church. The Corinth church was a wild, wild people, and, but they loved the Lord but they were struggling to love one another, but they were highly gifted. I bet you they had the most amazing musicians and they're speaking in tongues. They're doing all the things and it's a spectacle. And listen to what Paul says. He goes, if, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I don't even know what that is. What is the the tongue of men and angels? I don't know, but I'm guessing it's pretty impressive, right? If I have a language, it's like angelic. It's like, whoa, that's pretty awesome. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Whoa, hold on. Who's ever been to like a concert or an orchestra or something like that? Yeah, it's really cool, right? Just imagine a chimpanzee with no musical ability just comes out on stage and just bangs the cymbals while that thing's happening. What would happen? You're a drummer. It would throw everything off, right? Now someone in the, in the audience would be like, I think that's pretty cool. But most people are not going to, I didn't pay money for that. He's saying that's what you're like when you have this most amazing language. You might be the greatest preacher, but if you don't love, you are like a chimpanzee banging on a cymbal all day long. It's not good. He goes on. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, that's pretty cool, and all knowledge, smart, and if I have all faith, faith's a kind of big deal in the Bible. Faith so much that I could remove mountains. Like you're just walking around on a hike and kid's tired. And like, I don't want to walk up any more hills. No problem, kid. Hey, mountain, go. And it just moves. 
and it's flat now. That's, a, that's faith. But I have not love, he says, I am nothing. <laughs> that's that's gut-wrenching. I can have all those things, but you're nothing. That's what it says. If I give away all that I have, I'm extremely generous. I even give away my body. I deliver it up to be burned. Strange. But have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Then he goes on to say this, and this is where most people just jump in. Love is patient and kind. By the way, you and I, there are many times we're not patient, we're not kind. Jesus is always patient. Jesus is always kind. Love does not envy or boast. I envy, I boast. Jesus never envies. Jesus never boasts. Love's not arrogant or rude. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. He humbled himself to the point of death. It does not insist on its own way. Jesus said to the Father, if there be another way, let's do that. But if not, not my will, but yours. It's not irritable or resentful when they spit in his face, he responded with love. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Love bears all things. Jesus is the burden bearer that you and I just need every day of every minute. He believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And listen, love never ends. And if you're in Christ, I want you to know his love for you never ends. Even when you are not loving properly. He don't quit on you. He never quit on you. You couldn't remove yourself from his hand if you tried. Your good shepherd's with you. His love never ends. I want to be like him. I want to love like that. I fall short. He'll help you because he don't quit. His love continues. All right, last quote, and we're going to pray and we'll be done. We're going to sing because we need to respond, right? And we're going to enjoy communion. But I want you to listen to this quote. This quote has profoundly impacted my life. It's by C.S. Lewis, right? He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So what I'm asking you to do, it's going to wreck your world. What Jesus is asking you to do, it's going to wreck your world. Because you're going to love people and they're going to hurt you. And he's going to say, I know all about that. Keep loving. And he'll give you the grace to do it. So that's what he's calling us to. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The rest of our time here, and what I mean by that is until the Lord returns or we're done, we're going to talk about what it means to build a church that's healthy. And health is measured in love. 